listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 27, How Are Supply Chain Issues Impacting Academic Publishing? I'm your host, Karma Chavez. So in January, Dr. Domino Perez, Associate Professor of English and Latino Studies Affiliate, posted the following tweet. We need to talk about the paper shortage and how it is impacting academic press timelines, which in turn can affect tenure and promotion cases. This hits differently across higher ed, but it's an equity issue especially for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color faculty. Throughout the pandemic, we've heard a lot about supply chain issues, but as Perez's tweet notes, the paper shortage has unique impacts for those of us in academia. Printing Industries of New England explains that paper production for printing has been experiencing a slow decline for years, and paper mills have been adjusting their production capability to match that decline. But in 2021, it became clear that the mills underestimated the demand for paper. Unfortunately, ramping production back up is not a simple task. It's complicated by a variety of factors, including high demand for source materials, shipping issues, as well as staffing and high costs. To get a sense of the impacts locally, I've invited two guests today. The first is Dr. Lilia Rosas. Assistant Professor of Instruction in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina-Latino Studies and Director of Red Salmon Arts and Casa de Resistencia Books, a grassroots Native American and Chicanx and Latinx cultural arts organization. I've also invited Gianna Lamort, the Assistant Director of Sales and Marketing at the University of Texas Press. Lilia and Gianna, welcome to Latin Experts. Hi, thanks so much. Thank you, Karma. So, Gianna, let's start with you. Will you talk to us a little bit about the typical life of a book? In other words, from the time a book is submitted to a press, to its publication, to the peak of its sales, about how long is that typical journey? Well, a typical journey, it's it's a high art book, meaning it has a lot of illustrations that adds time to a book. If it's a long book and it's going to need more editing, let's just say it's a monograph. It takes about a year from the time that book comes into copy editing to the time it's on a bookshelf. Now, we can give or or take a little bit. And, of course, this is in the before time. So about a year. So about a year in the before times. And then how has that changed for UT Press or more generally since the pandemic? I'll, I'll say for academic presses and small presses. Bigger publishers don't seem to have the same issues as, as we have, unless, of course, their cookbooks fall off a ship, like what happened last week. But anyway, our timeline has changed. I think we're going to add about a month, a month and a half to just the printing of a book. I can give you a couple examples. We ran out of a book almost immediately at, at, when it went on sale. Typically, we can get a reprint of a book in about four or five weeks, if we're lucky. Five weeks is typical. Now it's taking over two months, three months in in one case to get the reprint. 
what happens is demand drops for that book and we risk losing significant sales. Academically, for an academic book, we could miss a conference. And that conference, if it's a big enough conference, it's important enough where that's a really big deal for this one book. So if we expect a book to come in in April and it's going to hit a major conference, and now the printing timeline is pushed to June, that author is really hurt by missing that that one important conference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I was wondering then what you're saying suggests that that also would impact places like the devil organization, Amazon, because they also wouldn't be able to get that book. That's right. So we're not able to supply anybody books. I can only talk about myself, who I'm supplying books for, but I would say that small presses and academic presses are not able to supply anybody books. I don't know if bigger publishers are prioritizing who gets books. Right. So, Lily, I want to turn a little bit to you. So, first of all, I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about Resistencia Books and and its importance in Austin, and then I'll return to what we've been talking about here with Gianna. Sure. Uh, Resistencia Books has been around since 1981. Sometimes we say 1983. Like many grassroots entities, sometimes our timeline gets a little thrown off. And I myself have been part of that space since... 2004 on and off before I became the director of Red Salmon Arts, which is the organization that then houses Casa de Resistencia Books. And we are, as you stated already, a Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, Latino, Latino, Latinx, indigenous-centered organization, but also has a bookstore where we um, seek to highlight, to honor, to celebrate texts, books, art that grounds our experience through these cultural manifestations. And so a lot of what we do is Austin-based, but Raul Arsalinas, who was the founder of Resistencia Books, um, really had both a transnational and internationalist approach to almost anything. So although maybe us as individuals might not have ties with specific locales, the organization does, and Mm -hmm. and the roots um, run deep. Yeah, thank you for that. Just for folks who know, I wanted them to learn a little bit about what you do. And so if we think about then what Gianna is talking about with them not being able to get books published in such a timely fashion, let's now move that to what that means for a small people of color-led bookstore. How's the impact on your end? That's a great question. So one thing we want to, and I guess this is where my historical training comes in, we want to contextualize that. Folks, as a rule, really weren't until maybe, let's call the summer of the awakenings a couple years ago, really were intentional about prioritizing where they got books. For folks, if they actually were looking for physical copies of books, would go to the easiest place, right? So Amazon right now, it um, represents the easiest place for folks to get books. Since I would say the last two to three years, there has been concerted efforts, not only by those of us who are booksellers, but also by folks who are not authors to really spotlight that when you get a book, you need to pay attention where you're buying it from. So Bookshop has emerged as an alternative in terms of an online space that allows folks to get books. Because the sad reality is, is even in the before times, 
the foot traffic to bookstores as a rule, unless it's really known, and I was just recently in Portland, like Powell's Books, for example, people simply weren't going into bookstores to buy books. So part of what's important is educating folks as to why just buying a book, especially if you're a, a nascent BIPOC artist or poet or academic, actually makes a world of difference. Like you literally through your dollars and thinking about racial capitalism and all its problematics, you're still making an, a meaningful inroad into showing with your dollars that you care about this book enough to buy it. So I guess mm-hmm. that's a very long answer. No, it's a great answer. And actually, it, it, it reminds me, and this, I w- will love to hear a conversation between you and Jeanne about this, because before we started today, I was talking with Jeanne a little bit about digital publishing and if that's a response to this where what that means for a press and I'll let her speak in her own terms here but it seems like the question about the material object versus the digital object is one that's very different than for a bookstore versus a publisher and so maybe I'll I'll pitch that to you Gianna about the disconnect between digital and paper publishing what what difference that makes for a press like yours first I'm going to say really quickly why physical bookstores, independent bookstores in particular, are important to me. When I was a young, (laughs) queer kid, very scared, didn't understand what was going on, terrified my family would find out I was lesbian, I went to bookstores. I went to Women and Children's First in Chicago. That was my safe space. Amazon can never, ever, ever give us that safe space. I can never get someone on Amazon on the phone and say, this is what I think is happening. I'm scared. Can you offer a support group? Can you recommend a book? That's never going to happen. That's why bookstores are important. Not only so you're supporting your community, you're supporting the booksellers that actually handed you a book that were actually there for you during a, a rough time. They actually support the community in every single important way. Uh, you can take my queer experience and you can, run it across the board, anyone who has depression or anything like that. That's why bookstores and libraries are important. Um, Now I've actually forgotten the question you asked. I'm going to just hang up now. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I love that you said all that because I think it really affirms the importance of a place like Red Simon Arts and Resistencia as well as locally, book women, book people. I mean, there's all these places locally. And I love that. And I guess I like too that you brought in your personal experience as opposed to just the professional experience. They're Um, safe places, yeah. Absolutely. And so my question was about for the bookstore, I guess you could sell digital books too. And I'll, you know, ask Lilia to expand on that. But for academic publishing, like for UT Press, does it matter as much if a book is in paper or or digital? You know what? It doesn't, depending on the book. But what we were talking about before we started was if we publish a monograph by a scholar, we're going to sell that book into libraries digitally. People can download it on various formats. But I think There's something about that physical book for that academic, for someone who worked in some cases 10 or 15 years on a project, to have that physical book to say, here it is, I did this. And to see it when they go through a bookstore, to see it on a bookshelf, to see it in a library, it means something. Yeah. I think even if it's just that emotional piece, that's significant. And Lily, I guess I want to pitch the same question to you from the kind of bookstore perspective. 
part of what you were talking about before was some of these people who maybe are publishing chapbooks or other things that actually yeah. aren't going to be digital objects. And so from your vantage point with the mission of, of Resistencia, what does the question of digital books raise for you? As a grassroots organization, digital books are not necessarily our purview, simply because we recognize that in the communities that we're a part of, not only Chicano, Chicano, Chicanex, so BIPOC at large, digital divides are still a thing. And so to piggyback on what Gianna is, is saying as a first-hand experience, and I have my own bookstore stories as to why bookstores can become a refuge for many of us as BIPOC folks, as queer folks, as working-class folks. So that's a different part of the conversation. But to speak directly to your question, the reason why we intentionally haven't embraced digital books of any kind of iteration is because I think it is actually incredibly important to recognize that when you self-publish, it's still cheaper for you to go and photocopy and, you know, there are farther and fewer places to do that or piggyback photocopying somewhere else and put it together yourself and take pride, not only in maybe what you're articulating through words, but the artistry it took for you to put something together. And actually this is where I'm going to bring in my um, instructor hat. This is why I actually have, for example, people who make zines as well as chat books talk to my students about why that in itself represents a kind of vanguard in publishing, whether it's punk or riot girl, or really if we think about zines, for example, something that existed since the civil rights era where you would produce something that was really cheap and leave it there so people could become educated because you didn't always feel safe looking for maybe the questions you had about yourself, about your identity, about the community, about what you were thinking about yourself in that moment. And so we don't engage in digital um, publication just because I think it takes away from something Gianna was saying earlier. I'm just piggybacking, so I I apologize if I'm, I'm misquoting or misunderstanding, where there's a beauty for someone to literally be able to walk in your space. And I hope, you know, this pandemic stuff allows us to finally move out safely where you can physically hand someone a book who has a question and you could say, you know what, why don't you just read this book? Because maybe you'll see something about your story here, or maybe this will begin to answer your questions about where you come from. Or even you can just celebrate someone's work like firsthand. And so what I always tell people about Resistencia Books is although we're Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex, Latino, Latino, Latinx, and Indigenous, we're not comprehensive. Like I can't, we don't have every single book that represents that field or fields of study or communities. But what we do have are different texts that represent conversation. Like I can literally tell you, yes, when Dr. Karma Chavez came by and we did a book launch for her book, these are the conversations that emerged. And this is why maybe you're going to find this book incredibly appealing to you. Or I know them because of this reason. Or this person literally handed me this chapbook because they finally were able to gather their collection of poetry about intergenerational trauma. Yeah, I think that's really, really powerful. And pulling that out a little bit, because I framed this conversation for better or worse around academic publishing, which I could have framed it in other ways. And I love that you're bringing all this in that, that deepens the conversation. One of the things I was thinking about that I think relates to is 
just the, the nature of the material object, not just being personal, but also there, there can be repercussions. And so recently heard of a, a scholar whose book, I was talking to Gianna about this before we started recording, but a scholar whose book is done and she's ready to go for promotion. But because of this issue with the supply chain, her book's not actually going to be out until the fall, even though it was going to be out in the spring which means that material object won't exist. And at the University of Texas, that means she's not able to go up for promotion. And so there's also potential material impacts for these physical objects not being able to exist. And I don't think it would matter if it was a a digital object. It has to be the physical in this case. And and I guess I I share that story then simply to ask you, Gianna, uh, what is UT Press thinking about or what is UT Press imagining to do if this continues to be ongoing, which is what I was reading this morning and suggesting it will be at least for the next several months. Are there strategies the press is using? No, no, we are. uh, (laughs) We've stretched out all of our print schedules, meaning we've added almost two months to when I told you before that it would be a year for a six by nine book to be published from start to end. Well, we're actually making that about 14 months now. Not every book. If we have a really important book that needs to be published at a certain time, we can do that. But we can't change the print schedule. We have to cut somewhere. We have to make sure that the copy editing schedule is really tight, right? It's not going to happen on the printing side. And you're right. I think this is going to last at least another year. There's going to be no more paper mills aren't going to be built. You can't just start another paper mill and say, oh, I'm going to get on on this boom. Right. It'll take years to get up and going. Printers are being shut down or absorbed by other printers, and that's not going to end. But the price of paper has gone up what, 8%? Well, that's not going to change. Oh, and print-on-demand books, which actually, you know, we're using that a, quite a bit more for our scholarly books. If they're, again, a monograph and they can be easily um, used on print-on-demand, we're doing that. But print-on-demand you used to be able to get in a couple of weeks. Now that's over a month. So there are different options to look at. But basically the thing we had to do is we had to adjust our publishing program to the how long it's taking to get books, which is not an easy, <laughs> which is not as easy as it sounds. You have to go through every single book that you have on your plate now. So from 2022, actually 2021, all the way through 2023 and say, mm-hmm. okay, this was going to be a spring book. Now it's going to be a fall book. But what does that mean for your bottom line? You really needed mm-hmm. that book income to make your year end. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the other thing, bookstore events. That's how a lot of bookstores pay their bills, events. Well, now we're going into our third year of bookstores not being able to have events. When is that going to end? Are we going to be able to print books so we can get physical books and have in-store events in the fall in 2023? I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start to see the kind of layers of how complex this, this yeah. problem actually is. Yes. Right when you think you have your mind wrapped around it, oh, well, it's now going to take 14 months to get a book published. Well, it's not that easy. Where does it fit in the schedule? You can't have eight books, 10 books publishing in in one month because you have a certain amount of employees. You have two publicists that need to give publicity to all these books. So why are we in this business? I don't know. What are we doing? (laughs) It is a great question. And, And I guess, you know, returning to this issue, if you're an assistant professor who's on a tenure track, 
or if you're on a postdoc and needing to have a contract. I mean, there's all these ways then that people's careers can be impacted as well. And I think that the tweet I opened with suggests that likely the inequities will fall on expected lines around race and and class and gender for that as well. What if this is the new normal? So should the universities really look at those requirements for tenure or for promotion? That's what I was thinking as well. I mean, if in the publishing world, a digital copy is as valuable as a paper copy, then doesn't it seem like universities perhaps need to reassess what they consider to be the different achievements that need to be accounted for in order to be eligible for tenure? Yeah. Still do a physical book after you've done a a digital book, because if you're going to send a book in for prizes, often you need a physical book. So just because you're going to publish just for tenure, even a digital book a few months before you can get your physical book, that doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to sell that physical book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you all are raising such important questions and I have found this conversation fascinating, but the time goes so fast. We are at the end of our hours. So uh, thank you so much, Lilia and Gianna, for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. So our guests today, again, were Dr. Lilia Rosas, Director of Red Salmon Arts and Casa de Resistencia Books, and Gianna Lamort, Assistant Director of Sales and Marketing at UT Press. We've been talking about the impacts of supply chain issues on academic publishing and bookstores. I'm your host, Carmen Chavez, and this has been Latin Experts. Hi, all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.